Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. I'm Peter Getz. Right now, Red Bull, Chipotle, and GoPro are creating branded entertainment for millions of viewers. This type of content isn't new. It started with the beginning of radio. Instead of having short commercials sandwiched between programming, advertising agencies would create their own series. Everything from dramas to music shows. My guest is Cynthia Myers, author of the book, A Word from Our Sponsor, covering the history of radio from the 1920s to the late 1940s. We discuss the past, present, and future of brand entertainment. Radio was kind of like the internet of the 1920s and 30s. It was a new medium, and nobody knew how to monetize it. Um, and when I discovered that the advertising industry was actually really important to building broadcasting as a commercial medium, I looked into it a little bit more and I went into some archives and I found um, all sorts of documentation and records of what ad agencies actually did, which is that they became the actual producers of most radio programming in the 30s and 40s. And so I also um, uh, research new media um, and I'm looking at branded entertainment today as well because the internet is kind of like the radio of the 21st century. It's a new platform or technology that is very challenging um, and it's requiring a lot of people to rethink how they're doing things and one of the ways that they're rethinking about it um, is to actually return to some of these older strategies of integrating entertainment and advertising. So compare and contrast the branded entertainment from the past and present. Wow, well, um, there's a lot of variety. Um, so to sort of summarize it, the branded entertainment of the past on radio and television from the 30s through the 1950s was usually controlled by a single advertiser. Um, I call it single sponsorship. So one advertiser would control an hour, like Monday nights, 8 to 9 p.m., and often the show was then named after the sponsor, like the Kraft Music Hall or the Maxwell House Showboat. Um, and the idea was that they would, um, through their ad agency, they would select entertainment that they thought would um, help provide sponsor identification. So people would hear the entertainment and be very grateful to the advertiser and the sponsor and then go out and buy that brand and associate that brand with that entertainment. Um, today, branded entertainment is being handled very differently. Um, usually, the sponsor or advertiser's name um, isn't necessarily all over the entertainment. Usually it's integrated in a more subtle way, like through product placements or brand integrations. But also advertisers are much more aware that um, audiences might be resistant to advertising messages. And so they're turning to branded entertainment in a way to disarm some of that resistance and to entertain people um, and also get the brand message across, but they don't want to hit them over the head with it. Um, whereas the old branded entertainment they believed in direct media effects. They thought that if they said something on the radio, it would have this direct effect on the audience. They'd go out and buy it. Um, and advertisers today are much more sophisticated um, in their understanding of audiences. There's always that concern for brands is, what are we spending money on? If this is to entertain the audience or are we here to sell products? So what were the methods that were used to measure the effectiveness of this new medium? Well, back in the radio era, they really had no idea who was listening. And the main way they knew was um, from mail, from letters. People would write letters to the network or to the station. Um, and so a lot of radio advertisers used all sorts of strategies to try to get people to send in mail. So they would offer premiums. They would make offers, send in a dime, we'll send you some 
you know, marigold seeds, or we will send you a, a soap sample. And that way they could get some sense of who was listening and um, how many people were listening, but they knew it was very inexact. Then they tried telephone surveys where they would just call people up and ask them what they were listening to or what they listened to the night before. Um, but again, that was a problem because not everybody had telephones. So it's really not until um, Nielsen invents the autometer, which was uh, uh, 40s, probably in the 1940s, um, I don't remember the year now, where um, he would attach a device to a radio set and it would record what radio station the set was tuned to. Um, and that way they could get a record of what a particular set was actually tuned to. But it couldn't tell anybody who was in the room and who was listening. And so that kind of demographic information doesn't come along until Nielsen develops um, the people meter for the television set where, you know, um, you attach a device to the TV set and the people in the family, the Nielsen family, punch a number every time they enter and leave the room to indicate who's in the room being exposed to those um, TV commercials. But this is actually one of the biggest challenges for branded entertainment right now is that all of the um, um, normal um, kinds of ways of measuring its reach, its frequency, its effectiveness, um, you can't really apply them to branded entertainment. Um, we've had a, a broadcasting system based on this idea of, you know, 30 second or 15 second interrupting TV commercials that are bought and sold based on ratings data, which is only based on a tiny sample of the TV audience. Um, and advertisers are buying access to that audience based on this sample. Um, and now advertisers are realizing that, you know, that currency, the, Niels the Nielsen ratings currency is is maybe not as useful anymore uh, now that especially that audiences can be so much more mobile and um, just like in the radio era they they kind of wonder well if they start underwriting entertainment more directly um, as they did in the radio era um, are they just subsidizing the entertainers are they really just you know paying Jack Benny's salary or are they actually also getting their brand message out um, and I think that's um, going to be a question that's going to be answered differently by different advertisers so certain advertisers who really are developing a brand like, um, you know, uh, fast food brands and soda brands, they really are going to have to move into branded entertainment more and more because that's that's what they sell is an association, a brand image. Um, but other kinds of advertisers who um, maybe um, will start looking more towards um, other strategies that are more product-centered, um, it will really depend on what the advertiser's ultimate goals are. In radio, when did the producers know whether or not to double down on a series or cancel it? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, uh, the ad agencies often would advise the sponsor about this. And one of the issues that sometimes the sponsor would have um, their own personal feelings about a program. So a sponsor would happen to like a certain entertainer and want to have them on the air. And then the ad agency would say, well, but you know, really you need this other kind of entertainment to attract um, your audience. And, and they were just developing ideas about a, a targeted audience because back then they were approaching radio as just a mass medium. So it was trying to reach everybody all the time. Um, so sometimes it was sponsor whim uh, or a sponsor would be annoyed at an entertainer or an entertainer would ask for too much money and they would just you know, um, so the contract negotiations between the agency, the entertainer, and the sponsor were always, you know, very fraught. 
Um, and the entertainers themselves had mixed feelings about this. Some of them believed that they should be able to do what they was, you know, do their thing, be, do their entertaining thing without any interference from the sponsor. Um, whereas other entertainers felt very strongly that the sponsor was paying them and therefore they needed to really help the sponsor and help promote the product and integrate you know, the sponsor's needs into the program. So there was this divide among the entertainers themselves. And that usually depended on whether or not they became famous um, off of radio or on radio. So like um, people who were famous in other fields like film and vaudeville sometimes struggled more with a sponsor relationship than um, entertainers who became famous on radio. Um, for example, Kate Smith was a singer who was unknown until she um, was on radio, and then she became a big proponent of, of entertainers really integrating with a sponsor. What celebrities were outspoken against this interference? Well, um, during the actual radio era, um, people who wanted to be on radio wouldn't be openly um, critical of sponsors. Um, however, there were um, there were entertainers who just never got a radio show. Um, but by the 40s and 50s, um, radio was the top entertainment medium in the late 40s. And there was a big um, kind of pushback against commercial radio. It's called the revolt against radio. There was a lot of criticism of sponsor control. And actually, this um, ad man who worked for um, um, Lord and Thomas, an ad agency, uh, wrote a novel um, uh, about how this sponsor was um, really controlling and dictatorial and crass and, um, uh, uh, you know, just kind of ruining um, radio entertainment and not letting the entertainers um, be who they needed to be. And this made a big impact. In fact, it was turned into a movie starring Clark Gable. It's called The Hucksters. Um, sometimes you can see it on TCM. But this tension between um, the in what the entertainers wanted to do and what the sponsor needed in terms of their brand message uh, was present all the way through. The issue was how to negotiate it. And so different agencies negotiated this differently. Um, some agencies gave their talent a lot of flexibility. So Young and Rubicam uh, was known for being fairly flexible with talent like Jack Benny and Fred Allen. Um, whereas other um, agencies like um, J. Walter Thompson, um, they scripted all the shows. They were um, they chose, you know, who the guests would be on the Craft Music Hall. They scripted um, Bing Crosby's um, improvised sounding patter. Um, so they were they were very much in control. So it, it really varied. It varied by sponsor, it varied by agency, and it varied by entertainer. Were name actors less important in the world of soap operas? De oh, definitely. So soap operas were designed to be a very low budget um, programming um, genre, um, unlike the primetime big musical comedy variety hours. Um, so the daytime soap opera, they kept it cheap in part by um, triple casting the actors. So almost every actor played multiple characters um, and they didn't have rehearsals um, and they only had like two actors in a scene at a time so they didn't have to pay the entire cast for every broadcast. Um, and instead of having an orchestra the way the top primetime programs had, they had an organist. Um, and yes, they definitely, um, if a, if an actor started asking for more money, um, Black at Sample Hummer, you know, would fire them and hire somebody else to uh, play that same character. And of course, the audience couldn't see 
uh, the face of the actor, so uh, they very rarely were aware um, because the actors were very rarely credited. Um, and by the way, the ad agency was almost never credited either, which is one reason that people don't know that the ad agencies were scripting most of these programs. How did the producers, Frank and Ann Hummert, become such a force to reckon with on radio? Well, um, because they could deliver targeted audiences, that is housewives, to their clients very effectively at a very low price. And they invented this kind of um, uh, assembly line style of producing programs. So, um, you know, when you think about theater or movies, somebody sits and writes a script for a long time, um, and then they rehearse it for a long time, and then they film it or they perform it on stage. And with radio, they were trying to um, produce episodes daily. Um, and this was a huge challenge. So the Hummerts were, um, um, with their agency, Blackett Sample Hummer, came up with these ways of producing content quickly and cheaply. So one of the ways they did that was they had a stable of actors. And the actors were you know, cast in multiple roles in each uh, program, but then they were cast in multiple programs. So they could produce multiple programs at the same time. And then they had a team of writers. And what they would do is Frank and Anne would sit down and outline the plot lines for, you know, like the next several months of the program. Then they would hand off the outlines to a story editor who would then break it down episode by episode. And then they would hand it off to a dialogue writer who would then write the dialogue based on what the plot you know, developments were supposed to be for that episode. Um, and so they could produce with this team of writers doing um, this kind of uh, writing process, they could, they could manage multiple um, programs at the same time and at a, at a very low cost. And they paid like on a, on a piece rate and um, they were criticized for this. And in fact, um, the American, um, uh, the AFTRA, the American Federation Oh, I just forgot the name of it. The, it was a union for radio performers, um, uh, in part developed because there was a lot of dissatisfaction with how the Hummerts paid their talent. Uh, but the Hummerts would always defend themselves saying, well, when we employ people, we employ them a lot. And so they earn a lot, even though it's a low piece rate because they're producing a lot of pages or they're on a lot of episodes. Um, so the clients like Procter & Gamble um, would that just keep asking the Hummerts, we'll come up with another soap opera idea. We want to sponsor another one. So Procter & Gamble sponsored, oh gosh, uh, dozens of different um, soap operas through the Hummerts um, in order to provide a variety of programs to attract housewives so that the housewives would listen to the um, soap operas all, you know, all afternoon. Um, so the housewives wouldn't necessarily be a conscious of the fact that they were hearing programs produced by the same agency for the same sponsor because each program was sponsored by a different product. So Mal Perkins would be sponsored by Oxidol and the Gibson family was sponsored by Ivory and so on, even though they were all part of the Procter & Gamble product line. And that kind of blocks scheduling is what people are familiar with with TV. Exactly. And um, part of block scheduling was to create audience flow which was that you, you set up a line um, of programs that you think are going to keep your audience engaged and that way you, you keep them listening or you keep them watching. Um, and so this idea was actually developed you know, back in the 30s um, and yet um, one of the problems with primetime broadcasting was that because the sponsors controlled a time franchise, that is they controlled Monday 8 to 9 p.m., they could program whatever they wanted. So sometimes you'd have this kind of 
um, uh, difficult um, transition. You'd be listening to a drama, and then all of a sudden the next program, which was owned and controlled by an advertiser, would be a comedy, and the audience would suddenly drop out because they weren't in the mood for a comedy after listening to that serious drama. And the networks became aware of that. Um, but the networks had foisted programming off on the advertisers because the networks didn't want to pay for it during the Great Depression, during the 30s. And they were quite happy to not have to um, um, finance and manage programming. They were happy to have the ad agencies and advertisers do it. But by the 40s, when radio became so popular um, and, and networks realized that what they really needed to do was to create audience flow, that meant they needed to control the schedule. But what they'd done is they'd sold off their schedule piecemeal to different advertisers. And one advertiser wanted to have classical music and another advertiser wanted to drama and it didn't all fit together. Um, and so in the late 40s and early 50s, a number of people, especially in the ad, in ad industry, started talking about how important it would be for the networks to take program control so that they could create a better advertising medium. In other words, they needed to create television so that um, you could, uh, the network decided what programs got scheduled when rather than the advertisers and that way the networks could create, develop and produce audiences for the advertisers rather than the advertisers having to produce an audience for themselves just for one hour a week. And this was actually um, Pat Weaver, um, who was the president of NBC um, in the early 50s. He really popularized this idea, even though it had been around in the ad industry um, for the entire radio era. But the big advantage of this to advertisers was that if they no longer had to produce one program and try to get audiences interested in it, um, they could then buy ad time all the way across the schedule and reach lots of different audiences at different times, different days of the week, and on, and on different programs. And it gave the advertisers much more flexibility to have ads separate from the programs. And that's the kind of television that we're used to now. Uh, but that really didn't start happening until the 1960s. Um, it develops in the 1950s, but it really doesn't actually happen until the mid-1960s when sponsors finally um, backed off of owning their own programs and the networks forced them off the schedule and the network started saying, here, we're going to put a program on and we want you to buy 60 seconds or two minutes you know, within the program. And advertisers finally realized that their mobility was actually very valuable also. But they had to give up a big idea and the big idea they gave up was sponsor identification. Um, they realized that if they were just going to put um, separate ads in the middle of different programs, they were no longer trying to get the audience to really identify the entertainment with the product. So went from audiences consuming branded entertainment to consuming a brand sandwich. Yes, exactly. And in fact, in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, a lot of programs were still sponsored nominally. That is, um, the network selected and scheduled it, and then they would go find like two, three, or four sponsors who would then each have like, you know, um, some ad time within the program. And they were still called sponsors, even though they were no longer controlling the program. And so in the ad industry, this was a really big transition. And my current research is actually about this. I'm looking at J. Walter Thompson and BBDO and how they handled this, where they had been directly producing, scripting, casting, selecting, doing everything on program production. And then they had to transition into advising their clients on which programs to pay um, you know, for ad time to reach audiences. And it's a very different process and a very different 
way of thinking about using broadcasting as an advertising medium. It's interesting to see how ad men and women have to switch back to an old model because of all the opportunities the internet presents. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's really interesting, well, to me, what's very interesting is that I like to tell people sometimes that this model of interrupting ads that are separate from the program text, that that was the un unusual thing, that that only happened for 50 years. But for the 30 years before that, and probably for the 30 years coming, we're going to have program and advertising texts very much more integrated. Um, and so in a way, um, what's unusual is having them separate. And I, and I also like to always remind people that um, the separation of the program from the ad or the commercial is actually just textual. It is like in a magazine when you open up an article and then there's an ad right next to it. You can see that there's a difference, right? Oh, here's the ad and here's the article. But the editorial content is also it's designed to support the ad. Um, and the advertiser is buying space in a magazine based on what audience that magazine editorial content is producing. So there is no such thing really as separation between the content and the ad, and there never really has been. It's just been kind of artificially separated. Um, and so what happened in the TV industry um, in the 60s and 70s is that Hollywood became much more involved in program production, and they were then working for the networks rather than for the advertisers. The advertisers, meanwhile, were making deals with the networks to get access to those audiences that were watching those programs. So you had the networks being the central figure in this whole um, business, which was the exchange of, of audience attention between the networks and the advertisers. Um, so that system worked really well for 40 or 50 years, but it was predicated on this idea that the audiences could not avoid the commercials um, with linear television I mean, all you could do is turn it down, you could mute it, you could go into the kitchen, but you had to wait, you know, you had to wait through the commercial before you could get back to the program. Um, and today, of course, um, it's obvious, audiences don't need to do that anymore, and they have all sorts of different ways of not being forcibly exposed to those commercials. Um, and this whole, the role of the network then is suddenly um, at risk, because the network's whole job was to mediate between the program producer and the advertiser in producing audiences, because the program's designed to produce the audiences that the advertiser wants to reach. Um, and all of a sudden, if the advertisers are producing their own programming now, which is happening more and more, maybe they don't need the networks anymore. And meanwhile, Hollywood um, and the program producers, um, they're running around being very upset because they don't work for the advertisers, they work for the networks. You know, they're, they're, they want that authorial integrity, you know, um, they don't want to see themselves as being compromised in any way. But the people who've always financed the content have always been the advertisers. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. You could uh, check out the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. And there's some videos on YouTube. Also, feel free to email me at katz, K-A-T-Z, films at gmail.com. And follow me on Twitter at PeterCats1.